politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and forgotten taxpayers to the one and only source of independent conservative talk. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house at CR Podcast for another exciting week here at Blaze Media. And let me tell you, folks, um, I am getting sick of these busy weekends. <laughs> I need time off, but uh, it's it feels like a Thursday, a Friday Given what is going on, there are so many important things for which we need a vision, and that is a vision that few are providing. This is our little uh, quarantined town hall where we're the only ones really focused on civilization outcomes. What matters specifically to the here and now long term? Um, It's going to be another week with Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, obviously the coronavirus is taking up a lot of bandwidth of political news, but everyone's going to be focused on Democrat primaries. And as I promised, I would bring you the best coverage I can of Republican primaries. You know, I mean, shouldn't we care about whether we're going to have a more like a Mark Meadows Republican than a Kevin McCarthy Republican? And then we got, as we always talk about, judicial supremacism, where the the judges are rendering elections moot in two different ways. Number one, they're determining every single outcome of every political issue. So there's no point in having elections. And number two, they're making it that non-liberals won't even be able to win elections anymore because they're mandating all sorts of voter fraud. We're going to talk about that very specifically with our special guest today who's running for office in New Mexico. But before I get to that, I just want to meander a little bit because I want to make sure we just touch on some of the news. There's so much going on. We got border news. Okay, they're sending 160 soldiers to the border to El Paso and San Ysidro Port in San Diego to prevent migrants from just rushing over illegals from invading us after this Ninth Circuit Court or court opinion, which is going into effect this week. Now they have an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. But again, folks, ask yourself this question. If this is something, if this is a court opinion that is engendering a need for troops at the border to prevent fallout from such a ruling that is as severe as bringing in random migrants from potentially 150 countries, during a time of a global pandemic, maybe, just maybe, that's not something within the jurisdiction of a judge to do. But sadly, that is not an idea entertained by our government. But there you go. They're mandating catch and release and bring them in in Arizona and uh, California. We're already seeing the numbers go up in Tucson. We're seeing a lot of single adults and UACs that have never been deterred, even when we're doing return to Mexico for the family units. And that's still a big problem. But once again, they will never assert. Settle law, Knopf v. Shaughnessy, 1950, Supreme Court, 
The exclusion of aliens is a fundamental act of sovereignty. The right to do so stems not alone from legislative power, but is inherent in the executive power to control the foreign affairs of the nation. And again, this this also ties into coronavirus. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you we could have prevented all of it. I don't know. But I was calling for a number of weeks. I was calling for a shut off of travel. You just got to do that. And we didn't even shut off travel from China as the Chinese students were coming back for the new semester. Now, Democrats criticized Trump even when he did finally shut off travel, travel from China. So they certainly have no leg to stand on. But you really wonder, I mean, especially the cases on the West Coast. Heck, we had travel from Iran, which seemed to have brought in a couple cases, when they shouldn't have been coming there pursuant to the first travel ban, which was a fraud. And then, folks, I know this is mean, but I can't help but laugh at, but laugh at this. We have nothing to show from the CPAC convention, but the spread of coronavirus. I mean, I guess that's all we got out of that little uh, get-together. Again, we're going to have our CPAC, a real conservative get-together, every day when we get this uh, Facebook town hall up. So we can actually focus on these issues of importance. But there's a lot going on on the border. Then there's, you know, foreign policy. Two soldiers were killed in Iraq, protecting and working with the Iraqi military on an operation against ISIS, a.k.a. we were protecting the Iranian-backed Shias that are killing us and lobbing, you know, missiles at us. We had 100 injured soldiers from that. While we're bailing them out from the Sunni insurgency. I put out on Twitter today, you could follow me at RM Conservative if you don't already, for all the things I don't have time to speak about or write articles on. A powerful juxtaposition. The Clarion Project put out a very important article today based on FOIA documents they finally obtained, showing that George W. Bush on September 11th, 2001, was scheduled to meet with two Muslim Brotherhood leaders at three o'clock in the afternoon that day, the very day their allies flew planes into the World Trade Center. He was meeting with them about Muslim outreach. Think about that juxtaposition. The problem is here, both through immigration, and then once they're here, we allow the subversive organizations, we should designate the Muslim Brotherhood a terror organization. They were gonna meet with ISNA and, and CARE, people from those organizations, which later on, a couple of years later, were designated or uh, labeled as unindicted co-conspirators in a terror finance trial. Bring them to our soil, allow them to control DHS, state, DOD policy, literally. I mean, Enwar Alalaki, who paid for the dry run plane tickets a couple months before 9-11, he paid for the hijackers to have a dry run. In January, or maybe it was February of 2002, a couple months after his disciples flew planes into the Pentagon, he met with DOD in the Pentagon for Muslim outreach. But meanwhile, we send our soldiers overseas to die for both Sunnis and Shias fighting each other 
and each one frags our soldiers while we're helping the other side. You can't make this up. And I'm just getting started here. You got all sorts of stories here with um, just this transgender conservatism, trans conservatism. Joni Ernst, senator from Iowa, is pushing trans transgender soldiers. Dan Crenshaw, the big GOP golden calf. I guarantee you one day he'll run for president. Pushing emphatically a GOP response to climate change. We even use their terminology now. Let them get away with the transition from global warming. And Ben Carson, the HUD secretary, said the minimum wage is too low. Folks, there are a lot of opportunities, but there are also a lot of pitfalls. We now have the news that Mark Meadows is chosen as the new chief of staff to President Trump. You can't get a better position than that. Now, I don't know when he's going to start, but that is a huge opportunity for us to get to the president. And push back against jailbreak and all this stuff. And boy, oh boy, do I have a jailbreak story for you. I'm going to have an article out today. But I do want to get to our guest. But I'm just telling you, there are a lot of important issues going on today. And uh, look, we really need to do this. And and, and again, just getting back to the border. This is the perfect impetus for pushing back against the judge see even if you don't want to do it in terms of the drugs and the gangs and the cartels and the criminal aliens and the previously deported sex offenders coming in and the public charge and the cultural problems but i mean you can't get more of a hundred zero political issue than coronavirus right so the perfect time see i don't think the judges realized this when the ninth circuit ruled that you have to let them in how hard is it for Trump to get up there and say, dude, a judge can't tell me in middle of a health crisis that I need to let in endless unvetted people from God knows where into our country when we're shutting off legitimate travel? How hard is it for to do that? This would be the perfect, perfect timing. If, if you wanted to pick a case begin pushing back against judicial supremacism you know you gotta walk before you run you gotta pick the right case with the right messaging that people understand you will never get a better opportunity than this one but again we need voices that are going to more aggressively promote these issues and i'm not hearing them from almost anyone so in that vein folks I really did want to get to our candidate today. Now, we have a lot of important races. You could email me, dharowitz at blazemedia.com if you feel there is a race I'm not giving enough attention. And look, I, I, I can't do this alone. I mean, nobody is focusing on GOP primaries. It's appalling. It's all about Democrats all day, even among my colleagues in this business, which I just don't understand it. So I can't get to every race. And granted, there are more pressing races that I think are coming up within the next few weeks. This is a primary in June, early June, but it's important nonetheless. Yvette Harrell is running in New Mexico's second district. That's the southern part of the state. It's a border district, very important. She is a former state representative. Now, some of you might remember she ran for Congress, that open seat left uh, by Steve Pierce. 
And it was a little bit funny what happened there. She was ahead most of the night, came out in the end behind. There's now a Democrat sitting in that seat. So she is running um, in a rematch, but there is a primary. And as we noted, as we noted, folks, that there is a gulf between certain candidates that is as wide, if not wider, than the gulf between Democrats and Republicans. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to elect more Kevin McCarthy Republicans or more Republicans that will join the Freedom Caucus, like Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, that will actually push along with people like Chip Roy for a new contract with America, a new vision, not just winning an election, but actually doing something with it. So let's go find out what we have in this race. Yvette, are you on the line? I am on the line. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to this. I know I promised to have you on a while ago, and it's just uh, one crazy issue after another, but glad we finally got to this important race. Um, First off, before we get into the mechanics of what happened last time, just to frame the race. So did I get this right, that the establishment is coming in and supporting your opponent in the primary, whereas you got the endorsement of uh, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows? Right. That's exactly what it looks like is happening. And, you know, we had so much momentum going into this race. I announced a year ago, January, and of course, uh, Congressman Meadows, Jim Jordan, um, I'm a friend, I'm friends with Chip Roy, but Congressman Biggs, in fact, he'll be in New Mexico later this week with me. Um, just a lot of the folks from the Freedom Caucus uh, as a whole, they've come out and endorsed me individually. And then of course, as a, as a whole, and that's very exciting because at the end of the day, the people that are actually doing the most work up there are the Freedom Caucus. They always put the values of Americans first. So it's exciting to think you can go into Washington and already step into relationships already built and get hit the ground running doing the right thing for Americans. Sure. No, and, and that's an important thing because I think to this audience, if you're running in a primary and you can't even state that you will join the Freedom Caucus, but you'll run ads as your opponent did um, this is a, a new shtick that they do shooting bullets through a red flag, like as if emphatically I'm, I'm a I'm a severe conservative, as, as Mitt Romney said, when they try to ingratiate themselves to the conservative base. But then they get up there and it's it's like what I call trans conservatism. Um, we have one senator we mentioned earlier on the show pushing transgender soldiers in the military, one Republican pushing the conservative response to so-called climate change. We have another Republican um, out there pushing massive spending, uh, another one saying minimum wage is too low. And I think we're forgetting what it means to be conservative. So my question to you, and and look, I'm, I'm not going to give anyone an easy time here, and I'm going to give you a tough question. What is it that we could do to change this trajectory. We had Republicans in control of all three branches in 2017 and 2018. And aside from the tax cuts, they literally did nothing to address the border, nothing to address judicial supremacism. Um, The only thing they they really did was just expand um, the size of government and grow spending well beyond the levels of the Obama administration. Right. And I think that's the frustration of it. In fact, I think Americans as a whole were tired. We saw a lack of leadership when we had the House and the Senate and the administration. And you're right. We did absolutely nothing. And there are so many issues that could have been put to bed that we could have addressed, but we haven't. And I'm excited about the candidates I've heard on your show that 
really, I feel like, have the same core values as many of the Freedom Caucus, but we've got to address the spending. I mean, I'm all for a balanced budget, even if we need to use the Article 5 you know, through the Constitution to do it. We've got to balance our budget. Every state in the nation, except I believe one exception, has to live by that. Our own families and businesses have to live within a budget. We didn't do it. Securing the border, that's turned into such an epidemic here. And now, of course, with the coronavirus and the sex trafficking and the illicit drugs, other issues that are hampering you know, our ability to do good work in New Mexico and, quite frankly, throughout the country, because we've had leadership. We had a Congress that was a do-nothing Congress. And I believe the American people are waking up to the fact they're seeing how good this president has done, how much good he's done for the nation, despite having to fight the left, the environmentalists, the Republicans, you know, the Democrats. And I believe there is a real hunger right now to elect like-minded people who really have the value of the American people, the Constitution, and want to see good works done in Washington, D.C., and put people above politics. And we haven't really had that in a long time, and I think that's a very refreshing thought for a lot of American people. So you mentioned the border. Um, Obviously, I'd be remiss not to talk about this. There's a big problem in the sense that almost every border district uh, elected official is for open borders. It's it's truly bizarre. You look, um, you you know, you go from Brownsville to San Diego, and it, it just there's been such a, a change over the last number of decades that typically, whenever you have congressmen from a given area that's affected by a certain public policy problem, they will be the strongest advocates to rectify that. But instead, they have no problem with it. Uh, the only one I could think of is, I, I guess, you know, you have some in Arizona, they're not even at the border. Um, you got Chip Roy, he's not really at the border itself, but close enough. Um, what right. is it that you think you could push as, as you know, one of the only good potential um, border congressmen to finally get this problem under control? Well, naturally, outside of the funding for the border wall, but like I've heard, I've heard on your show before and things we've talked about here, why don't we enforce the laws that are already on the books? We are giving people that are coming here illegally a free ride. There's no consequences. They're not having to go to court very often. They're not getting arrested. They're not getting deported. And they're, they're committing crimes in our states, in our country. And then, you know, getting two, three, four chances at it, they're violating parole. We are not enforcing the laws that we have on the books. And I also think that we could put more judges on the bench so that those people that are actually trying to come into the country legally aren't waiting in line for eight to 10 years and spending thousands of dollars. And in the meantime, we have all these illegals coming through. They're first in line for the benefits that American citizens, such as our homeless veterans and others, are not even allowed to receive because I don't know why. Why? Because they're American citizens. And here we've somehow become so so insulated in hurt, you know, from hurting anybody's feelings that we've gotten away from enforcing the laws. We need more troops on the ground, more boots on the ground. We need to help our law enforcement, our ICE agents, our border patrol agents. We've got to finish the funding, but we also have a lot of opportunity to enforce the law. And really, when I look at the bigger picture, if we would just enforce the law on the book and deport people, especially those that are here breaking the laws, it, there's just not a political will for it. And we saw the Democrats vote a House a party line vote to allow illegals to vote in our elections. I mean, in New Mexico, you know, you, you can come here illegally, get a driver's license, you get education. There's no there's no uh, uh, there's nothing to to dissuade people from coming here because they're being rewarded for bad behavior. 
Sure, sure. So, I mean, obviously, in terms of Congress, they haven't done much. But then you go over the next branch of government. You talked about appointing judges. So here's the thing. Trump has appointed a lot of new judges to the Ninth Circuit, but it's still the Ninth Circuit. And we saw last week, um, just shockingly, how during a global pandemic, a couple of judges, three judges in the Ninth Circuit could just say, hey, any caravan coming in, you have to let them in. You can't make them wait in Mexico. Um, obviously, you saw last year and a year and a half ago the devastating consequences to your district, your state. Why is it that nobody in Congress seems to be speaking about the premise of whether a judge has jurisdiction over that issue? Because what I'm scared about is as we're, we're speaking, you know, we start off the show with this. Are we really going to reverse that progress, especially during the coronavirus, because of a Ninth Circuit ruling this week? Right. And it's baffling to me. And, and you're absolutely right. Why aren't we finding the political will? Why are so many of our elected officials wanting to turn the other cheek and then turn it into a humanitarian crisis when indeed we're, we're subjecting American citizens to what various diseases, drug trafficking, everything else. But you know what, Daniel, I was thinking about it over the weekend. Um, and I was even thinking, you know, there is no leadership throughout the entire process right now in any branch because I point to just, you know, look what, uh, Chuck Schumer said the other day, the threat to our, to our federal judges. And yet, you know, there is statute. There are hard laws that are being broken there. I mean, there's going to be, there will be no consequences for him. And I'm looking at the big picture going, you know, we aren't even enforcing things from the top down or the bottom up. It is just kind of a heyday of, look, everybody wants to do the right thing. There's so, so much of this political correctness that nobody has the political will to stand up, speak up, and start taking care of business. And I think it's just a crumbling of our entire structure in terms of our republic because we don't have the right people in office that will stand up and do the right thing, call attention to the matters, and, and step outside the lines and do what is right for the American people. You look at your home state and there's there's a lot to talk about. Um, oh, my gosh. I mean, you got obviously the oil and gas industry judges sidelining drilling now. Um, but I want to make sure we do get to the border thoroughly, especially because you, know, you are going to be representing a border district. We had last year right. this un unprecedented phenomenon where the Border Patrol checkpoints were taken down on every highway headed into or in, in New Mexico itself. You have Highway 70, U.S. Highway 54, mm -hmm. um, which just serve as conduits for the drug cartels. The cartels are really slamming your state with illicit activity. I hear rumors um, from people in the state that there are issues in some of the federal lands with cartel activities there. And, you know, there's kind of this eerie, unsafe feeling um, what do you feel needs to be done in terms of military infrastructure? I know your governor pulled the National Guard from there, but to protect your state in particular. Right, right. And and you're right. They, In fact, there are three checkpoints in the second congressional district. And when they shut those down uh, last year for those several weeks, it it really is amazing because it's it is kind of that sense of security because we rely on our border patrol agents not only for the illicit drugs but for the for those coming in illegally that do that do try to come through the checkpoints but what we've done is we've put our the people the american people but certainly the people that live 
farm ranch along the southern border in harm's way. I mean, you've got people who live next to the border and literally the border wall going through their property is a barbed wire fence. And I'm not joking when I say that. It is literally a barbed wire fence. And here we are with families and farmers down there that can't leave their homes, can't leave their children alone, can't go out and check livestock without carrying a sidearm. I mean, they are American people, and there should not be this much fear of the people that are losing property, losing property values, the trash and and debris that these caravans come through and leave. I mean, we're talking two, three, four hundred people a day coming across some of these ranching properties. This is crazy. And the fact that we don't have a governor that would have stood up and protected New Mexicans first and kept the boots on the ground as it relates to our um, our uh, National Guard, that that was that was just such a mistake. And of course, it made everybody mad. But in order to really address this, obvious, you know, obviously we're building the wall. We're getting more and more of it built. But why the resistance by Congress helped fund this wall? I mean, that was one of the first first bills they had opportunity to vote on. And of course, our congresswoman voted against it, even though we have so many miles of southern border that really our citizens deserve to have that security. And we can see that the wall is working in the places where they've got it erected. So we haven't done a better job of protecting the American people. It is a big topic down here. And you're right, because there are too many people in the southern district, CD2, that live in fear, fear of losing a loved one, fear of losing more property, fear of losing vehicles, livestock, you name it. We've got to protect. It is a national security issue, and we have failed miserably in protecting American citizens. Because I, I was truly shocked last year. I did a three-part series on Hidalgo County. That's the boot heel for our listeners that mm-hmm. are unfamiliar with the area. I mean, you're talking about a county that is as large as almost, you know, <laughs> Rhode Island, a massive county right. there. And it's enveloped by the Mexican border. And you even had a bipartisan clamor, some Democrat officials down there that were calling for help. And it was just yeah. truly shocking to me to watch how, you know, we're, we're a government by the consent of the governed. And yet Every single demand, every single story from an illegal alien got national attention, got, you know, members of often both parties clamoring to deal with it. Um, You know, obviously, whenever the Supreme Court comes out with their decision on the so-called DACA, Obama's illegal amnesty, we talked about this last week. There is going to be a bipartisan clamor from 90 percent of Republicans. Oh, my gosh, we, we need a fix. We need a fix. We need to do something. But where is this sense of urgency that we have? You know, I live in Maryland, but ranchers living at the border, they have just as much of a right to security. And given that this is an international boundary, this is the job of the federal national government to protect the whole of the union. And I'm just not in other words, even if we address it a little bit in terms of the asylum policies, which we're starting to get it right, at least until the courts, to stop the mass numbers. But in terms of this eerie, as you were describing, because I hear from a lot of people in your in your district, um, this eerie sense of fear of the cartel activity, there doesn't seem to be a focus on that. No, there doesn't. And what's really ridiculous is I know you're familiar with the state of New Mexico. So we are one of the largest in the country in terms of poverty. We are very uh, poor in many areas and certainly down in that Hidalgo, Luna County, these counties that really that are on the west side of the state. So they are not part of the oil boom, the oil patch over Mm. on the east side of the state. 
So the, the financial burden that this has put over the last 18 to 24 months on these smaller communities, they do not have the manpower. They do not have the ability to, to house and to keep all of these illegals. And, and here's what's crazy to me. Uh, the governor just right away wanted to make sure that we had places for these people to stay. You know, we, we had to clean out the fairgrounds, make sure, and I'm talking down in Hidalgo, Luna County area, make sure that we had housing set up for these. Now, they're breaking the law. They're coming here illegally. I mean, here we are putting their their livelihood, their ability to come to America before anybody else, before American citizens and before those that are coming through the, the correct way, through the proper channel. Yet the, the financial strain that we've put on these border communities is under, it, it's just crazy. They, they cannot afford it. And what I found just fascinating and quite almost comical is Congressman Small, Congresswoman Small, she introduces a bill to reimburse some of these border communities and the groups that tried to help house and feed and take care of these illegals. Not one mention in the bill of how we would help the property owners, the American citizens who lost, you know, again, livestock, their fences being cut, their their vehicles being stolen. Not, nothing for the American citizen, only for the special interest groups that made sure that they had food and medical attention yep. and housing available for these for these illegals. And I'm just I'm sitting down here scratching my head going We've got a large uh, population of uh, veterans in this state, and mm-hmm. quite frankly, and unfortunately, we, we have a fairly large population of homeless veterans. Yes. It makes me sick to think that we're gonna we're gonna make all these concessions. We're gonna t- you know turn Expo New Mexico and these high school gymnasiums and these fairgrounds into uh, housing units for these uh, illegals, and yet we will look the other way at, at the veterans and the homeless population. And that, to me, just sense, it's a sense of we've elected the wrong people. We are not about putting Americans first. And they're trying to do everything in the right way so they can continue to get those votes. Because I believe at the end of the day, this is all about getting people to the polls. And like I said, in New Mexico, there's no voter ID. Illegals can get driver's licenses. And in most cases, easier than American citizens can. And we've got our priorities all wrong. And it's it's crazy and if we don't wake up and start winning at the ballot box and electing the right kind of people we will see the interior fracturing of this country continue regardless of who the president is wow no and that that is certainly very well said and and again i i noted earlier it, it's it's no coincidence that uh, bernie sanders is picking up um you know certain new arrivals almost monolithically in the democrat primary and and again that that's just a testament to the lack of assimilation, to the broken part of our immigration system, um, the balkanization. But you mentioned something that I really wanted to get into. You, you talked about the election laws. So obviously, one of the most disquieting things um, is is voter in, the lack of voter integrity. The Democrats spent the last right. number of years talking about, you know, they're concerned about election security, foreign interference in elections, and yet. What we have here is, you know, I've seen state after state where they tried to enact common sense laws that were just, you know, almost mandated by Section 9 of the motor voter laws that they have to the states have to maintain clean voter rolls. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, they had photo ID requirements one after another. These lower federal courts got involved against Supreme Court precedent, by the way. Um, they meant, you know, states that tried to deal with this ballot harvesting problem of third parties just collecting hundreds, thousands of ballots and dropping them off 
um, this absentee ballot business where, you know, when I was growing up, absentee ballots meant, well, you're a businessman, you're on a trip, you can't vote um, in, the, in, in person, so you put in an absentee ballot. Now it's being used as a prospective insurance policy to just gather a bunch of votes. So I remember um, November 2018, that night, I was doing election coverage for for uh, CRTV then, now Blaze Media, and I was watching the critical House races that would determine control of the House, and I was watching New Mexico too. And, you know, it was not a very good night, and clearly it looked like the Democrats are going to take over, but consistently, one of the swing races, one of the competitive seats was yours, and you were ahead of Miss uh, uh, Torres Small the entire night, e even into the morning. And right. then suddenly it flipped and she was declared the winner. Could you explain yeah. what happened there and part of your long-term concerns going on in New Mexico and elsewhere? Right. So absolutely. That's exactly what happened. And of course, everybody saw everyone in the nation called the race 5248. And an hour after we made our acceptance speech, our secretary of state notified our campaign and said, well, wait. First, they called and said they had found 4,000 absentee ballots. And I don't know where they found them, but they found 4,000. But mathematically, we knew with the lead that we had, and we knew consistently that the, uh, where we were trending in that particular county that we were still going to win. And it just is fascinating to me because I imagine they must have done the math as well because one hour later, she called again and said, well, wait, they found 4,000 more. And of course, we knew the second time they called that the race was going to flip. But we did not realize at the time that that was happening in California, Arizona, New Mexico. You know, it happened in a number of states. Um, so we, we didn't realize it at the time. But as soon as we uh, found out what was going on, naturally, I was on the phone with Congressman Jordan and Meadows. Um, they They had endorsed me last time. They were very engaged in this race. So what we ended up doing is we impounded the absentee ballots. No one had ever challenged the ballots before in the state of New Mexico as we did. So we went to court. It took days for us to get them. Although state statute, you know, allows us to get them immediately. Um, and then as we started kind of peeling back the skin of the onion, when we started doing the report and digging into what we were finding, you know, we had over 500 ballots that were date and time stamped. These are absentee ballots. Uh, 500, over 570 actually, that were uh, date and time stamped. The next day after the polls had closed and the race had been called, uh, thousands with missing signatures. And, you know, we, we just realized right then that we knew we had problems, but now we had actually kind of a snapshot of what was really going on. And John Fund actually came out to the state and worked with our attorney, uh, was uh, engaged with the report that we did, but we were able to take kind of a snapshot of what was happening in New Mexico and, and use it as a national report that the Heritage Foundation, um, the Daily, um, the Daily Signal dropped the, uh, report and the, the article that went out. But it was just to bring voter awareness. And I remember I went on to Judge Janine's show right after the election and, uh, I told her, I said, look, right now there's more questions than answers. But what we have to do is instill voter confidence. And so we have worked hard over the last year and a half to make sure that New Mexico, you know, just doesn't see this same problem. And I'm, I'm not saying we're getting rid of all of the fraud here, but I tell you, it sure makes sense now to see us having uh, the state party here now has taken a huge active role with uh, voter integrity classes. Uh, Trump victory has a voter integrity um, group on the ground here. And we've even got 
which I think is really great, is the Public Interest Legal uh, Foundation. They've been on the ground here. So we really were able to expose a lot of the fraud, and let's just call it what it is. It was fraud. Uh, but I believe that we're working hard to make sure we don't see that happen again, and we're continuing to shine the light on what was happening. And here's the thing. We we could see in the absentee ballots the voter harvesting. Um, of course, that's legal in California. It's illegal here, but we could see how they were getting away with, you know, all these addresses, you know, that where these absentee uh uh, ballots went coming back from the same address, and it just was a real eye opener. And I feel I'm real proud of our team and our legal team that got engaged in the Freedom Caucus. Everybody that had a, a role in this because we we took I think one of the worst situations ever, but we were at least able to turn it around, expose a lot of the inconsistencies, the irregularities, and the fraud. And I think we'll be better for it in 2020. And it's exciting to think that President Trump is making New Mexico a state that will be in play for him. And I think our efforts here as a state, um, not just our campaign, but as a state, are going to improve uh, what the votes look like in 2020. Wow, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I actually want to get to just New Mexico politics and and you know where this looks, um, just where the state is trending. Um, but I just want to get back to this. You, you, so you believe that pursuant to the state laws that govern the electoral process, which... You know, as um, you know, the Constitution says very clearly and the Supreme Court and its old precedent, you know, states control the times, methods and procedures of elections, although federal courts are now lower courts like the Ninth Circuit are screwing with that. But pursuant to those laws, you believe you won on Election Day. I really do. Um, I actually really do. Just by virtue of of. The percentages, the margins, we knew we we knew that the race wasn't going to be a big landslide either way, but we really knew that we would win this race, and we knew that the at the end of the day the margin would be you know one two three percent. It would be close because clearly it was an open seat, and Democrats were really going after this seat uh, definitely. And you know it's just everybody in the state knows and can see what happened, and quite frankly. Two things happened that night, obviously, that turned this race a low voter turnout on the east side of our state where it is more heavily Republican, um, but also this these absentee ballots. And it's a sad day to think, you know, another 1,500 votes from the east side of our state, would this wouldn't have even mattered. It would have been a total change. So we've obviously been working on get out the vote, um, not only for our races, but obviously from down. But yeah, I, I really do. And people in New Mexico, the thing that I've really appreciated, and this, I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but in New Mexico, we're pretty good at getting to the polls every two years, getting angry about the outcome, and then we kind of don't talk about it again till right before we go back to the polls two years later. And that's just kind of the way it's been. This, since 2018, I am excited to tell you that the conversations have not stopped. People are still discussing what happened in our race in particular. They know there's a problem. There's been so much awareness. And even this weekend, we had our big pre-primary convention uh, up in Albuquerque for for all of our U.S. Senate candidates and the congressional candidates. And even at that convention, people were still coming up saying, you know, you got robbed. And I tell them, no, you know what? We all did. So there is a huge segment of people that know what happened. They know it was flawed. They know there was fraud. They know it was and not the right outcomes. And um, they are ready to have those votes vindicated. And so I think there's a real hunger in the state of New Mexico to turn it around. 
you, you mentioned the convention. Um, I saw an article stating that the majority of the delegates supported you. Could you explain what that means in the context of a primary? Because uh, we've long advocated the um, really the use of conventions instead of popular primaries. So what sort of confluence of conventions and primaries, or, or is it just kind of pro forma? It doesn't have any bearings in the primary? Well, it, it, it's supposed to, and then we did. In fact, thank you for mentioning that, because we did. We won 66% of the delegates in the uh, second congressional race, so a great snapshot in time to show where we are in this race and the, the amount of support that we have. So obviously the delegates are statewide, um, and then, of course, divided into the different congressional um, districts, so District 1, 2, and 3. And the delegates are determined by the number of Republican voters in the last uh, gubernatorial race. That's how they find the number of delegates. So each county in the state will send their designated number of delegates. And then how the process works is you have to receive at least 20% of the delegates in your respective district or statewide, depending on what you're running for, to get on the ballot, um, which we, we clearly did that. Uh, but then they've and I don't know when this was ever established, but then they came up with something some years back that said, well, if you don't get 20% of the uh, delegates voting for you at the convention, then you can go get more signatures mm. and uh, petition signatures. And then, so it kind of, to me, it's sort of, well, what's the point of having this, yeah. this convention if you, if you do well? Because we had somebody in our race that only got three votes. Um, it's a three-way primary, and so at this point, I'm assuming that he'll go out and get more signatures. But it, it kind of, to me, it, it kind of dilutes, uh, you know, moving forward because then you've got somebody who clearly isn't performing, isn't polling well, but would, can still stay in the race just by virtue of getting more uh, signatures. But in the in the larger picture, it really is a nice snapshot. It really does give the state kind of a clear view of, of what's going on in each of these uh, congressional races and clearly the Senate races as well. So it was it was a huge um, – I'm excited because last time, two years ago, we got 58% of the delegate vote, and here we are, 29, or 2020, getting 66%. So, um, But we're not taking anything for granted. You know, clearly we'll be out hustling and outworking and outdoing and, you know, because the seat – there's just so much at stake for the nation – and for the state, it just it just pushes me to want to do this and serve the people of New Mexico. Wow. And 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 fun fact here, in case you don't know or others don't know, Mitt Romney, <laughs> that you know, everyone's talking about him now. They actually had a primary challenge. There was someone else. Um his name was Mike Kennedy. He was in the state house, and he actually crushed Romney at the state convention. But by by that point, Utah had already done away effectively with the convention, kind of like what you're describing in New Mexico, where Romney was just easily able to just bypass it and get signatures. And, and again, like this is what I've advocated for so long. And I think what our founders had in mind in general, while obviously primaries are not constitutional, they are um, – you know, it's a party uh, nomination, but in the mold of what the founders believed in a republic, not direct democracy, you're seeing how the elites are able to control things with direct primaries a lot more. Because, you know, what happens is what's so frustrating is candidates don't say, look, we need the transgender agenda. Let's face it. I'm going to be in the big pockets of the open borders agenda. 
Um, I'm for criminal justice deform, aka jailbreak. I'm this and that. No, they run on my message. They sound like me. And then, you know, a couple months later, they say, hey, don't listen to that guy. He's a racist. He's crazy. He's nuts. You know, that's what they do. They play this game. And often these people have so much money to put out ads. Yep. On our message, not their message, on the very opposite message of the special interests that are fueling that campaign. And, you know, I just th this is why I wonder if it's it's better to go to conventions where it seems like more often the activists understand who's who and what's what. Right. I agree with you, because, you know, it takes a lot of work. This district, I'm sure you're aware, is huge. Oh, yeah. It's one of the biggest in the entire nation, you know, goes from Texas border to Arizona border and then basically from I-40, which is about the middle of our state south. It's an enormous district. And quite frankly, and I, I tell people all the time, look, you may see more ads on, from my opponents, but you're going to see more of me in the flesh because for me it's about mm -hmm. relationships. You know, I come into this race with the experience, eight years in the state legislature, which really is it was such a great experience, and it gave me the ability to understand the state, the industries, the people, the culture, and then develop relationships not only on the state level but obviously the federal level. I think part of the thing that's missing in the entire process here is term limits. I mean, I, I personally believe if we had term limits on our state level, the federal level, and I would go so far as to say on the U.S. Supreme Court in yeah. some ways, because we, here we are looking at the same, you know, looking at people that are making decisions for us that are so out of touch and now so so connected with the special interest group, the elites. I mean, the people, they, we the people are the ones that are, you know, the, the unintended consequences and the collateral damage because we actually do not have a voice. And we saw it with the tourist mole. She ran as a moderate Democrat. It was all about working together. Well, I remind people all the time, every day, her votes tell a different story. She's with nine, uh, Nancy Pelosi 94% of the time and then took that vote to impeach President Trump, who, by the so way, one by 10 points in our district, you know, in 2016. So, so that, that, that's a point. So I, I, I want to end with that point because I think that's very important. What bothers me all the time is I, I, I already mourned over California and, and states like that, my home state of Maryland. We understand where it is. It is what it is. There's a lot to talk about that. I, again, I think, you know, bad border policies had to do with some of these states. But when you look at states like Virginia and New Mexico, they, they really, I, I think they're very similar in this respect that, Yes, they've changed over time. Yes, they might not be like staunch conservative states, but they sure as heck are not alt-left states. But somehow right. the Democrats are able to get away with not only winning, but getting people in there that vote indistinguishably from San Francisco Democrats. And yet Republicans seem to do a poor job of combating that. How is it that the left has been able to, cause I've been watching New Mexico and I mean, the stuff coming out of there is yeah. as loony as, as anywhere. And do, do you feel that we're turning the corner that voters are waking up on um, whether it's the pro criminal stuff, the open border stuff, the anti-gun stuff, you know, like letting out the criminals, but taking away law abiding citizens guns. I mean, is, is there any movement to turn the corner in a state like New Mexico? And do you really think that there is a chance to flip New Mexico in the presidential election. Yeah, I do. I think there definitely is. I think we are turning the corner. And you're right. We have had many candidates, though, from out of state that have moved here. And then suddenly they're – and it's not just on the state and federal level. 
you know, we're talking about candidates that move here from out of state, bring policies from California and other progressive states that are in our, our school boards, they're on our they're on our chamber boards, our county commission boards, our city commission boards. I mean, it, they have been infiltrated, and especially in our larger communities, uh, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, and of course in my district, Doniana County. But I believe what we're seeing here is folks are starting to really wake up and understand just how overreaching government is. And we've been a little complacent, maybe a lot complacent in New Mexico and other parts of the country. But now we're starting to understand really what's at stake. And I think the not, it's not just because of the outcomes of the 2018 election, but I believe people are thinking, you know, the future of this country, this state looks very bleak if we have the wrong people, if we have Bernie Sanders. If, you know, Michelle Grisham Lujan has been a disaster as a governor for the state of New Mexico. I don't know how many times people say, I wish you were running for her seat. It's like, well, she's not up for two more years. But the but what's exciting is, and as bad as it is, is all these bad policies that they've pushed, you know, the moratorium they're trying to pass on fracking. They passed the Green New Deal for New Mexico. You know, the gun bills, uh, the late-term abortion, all of these things, it is stirring the fire in the belly of conservatives. And there are a lot of Democrats here, but they are also very much pro-life, pro-God, conservative family Democrats. And what we've got going on here is, I believe, a movement. And President Trump has been so popular here. He's been in the northern part of the state uh, for his rally and the number of Democrats that came out for that is unbelievable. So I, I believe he will win this state. Certainly he'll win second congressional district as he did before, but I believe he will win this state because there's just a hunger. We're finally waking up in the state of New Mexico that what's been happening for the last several years, the last 80 years, isn't working. We've got to have a change. And I'll tell you something else just on the state level. We have, I believe now, 97 candidates running for our House and Senate seats uh, statewide. So every single House and Senate seat is up for re-election. And uh, last time we had 69 candidates ran ran in 2014, we took the majority in the House. So it's a, so you can see the momentum and the people that are stepping up and the minority leaders in both the House and Senate have done an amazing job of recruiting candidates. So I think New Mexico is going to surprise a lot of people in the nation. Well, and, and that would certainly be good news. We're always the grim reaper of bad news here. But look, you know, know. Um, it's it's good to look forward to that. But then there's the second half. We need to make sure we don't repeat this vicious uh, cycle of Animal Farm where Republicans land in the same right. place or close to the same place. So where could candidates uh, where could our, our listeners find out a little bit more about your candidacy? Yeah, they can go to EvetteHerald.com and that's just Y-V-E-T-T-E. Harrell, H-E-R-R-E-L-L.com. And we've got a great uh, great website there. It gives my positions. And I know we don't have time to get into it today, but one of these days we need to get on and talk about that bill, that the bill reform and all of that, was, which is completely a disaster. And I'm 100% in agreement with what you've said in the past. And it's fake. Again, it's just a fake or a false sense of security for people and the wrong people are getting yep. released. But Absolutely. we don't have time for that now, but I'm... I'm with you on that. I was and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because New Mexico, uh, you're seeing it there and you're probably a little bit puzzled why Republicans, when they have control of states or the federal government, would do the same things that Democrats in New Mexico or New York or California are doing. I am truly puzzled by that as well. But I think we're going to need your voice in Washington to push back against that, because, frankly, uh, you know, we, we are, uh, as Jesse Helms used to say, enough of us to fit into a phone booth. 
So <laughs> we need to right. grow those uh, right. those phone booth and phone booths and expand out. Folks, send me your questions. If if you want me to uh, you know follow up with Yvette, uh, um, you know there is a couple months left. We will likely have her on closer to the June primary. So save those questions. You can email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Until tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening. <laughs>